Children are dismissed to continue their time of worship. The word, not silence, was made flesh, not concept, and grace, not merit, ministered to faith, not knowledge, in such a way that we may act as though we were an incarnation too. Those words that are printed on the front of your bulletin are one of my favorite quotes from Carlisle Marney, a Baptist preacher from several decades ago. For they take John 1 and point out what is the distinction of who Jesus is and what that means. Word, not silence. Flesh, not concept. I thought of those as I have been wrestling with this story about Nicodemus. I would say it has been personally confronting with me, confronting me ever since I started preparing for this morning. I was a little mad about it occasionally. You see, I I connect with Nicodemus. Um, Partially it's because I also am a religious leader. But it's also because, like Nicodemus, I'm a religious thinker. I like to think. I like to think about faith and about scripture. And the thing is, is that I know you're with me because you joined a thinking feeling healing congregation, and you love that. You and I both know that concept is much easier than flesh. You know that merit is much more controllable and predictable than grace is. Knowledge is less threatening and risky than faith is. We're all a bit offended by this intellectual banter, this confusing intellectual banter, which disrupts all that is certain and settled for Nicodemus. So I ask you, as I have been feeling, when was the last time that Jesus really messed you up? When was the last time that all that you ever assumed about God crumbled when you read the Gospels? If you haven't had that experience, you actually might read them. They, the more you read the Gospels, the more confused sometimes we are. We had friends over recently, and after having dinner, we sent the kids away somewhere to play. I think they were in the basement. And we were sitting having dinner, and we didn't want to get up from the table. And so someone noticed the uh, box of Jenga blocks right by the table, And so, instead of just talking, we decided to play Jenga. Have you played Jenga before? Okay, so you take all these blocks and you line them up in a certain way and you build a tower. And then, um, ever so slowly, you start removing a piece and putting it at the top. And the goal is to do it to see how tall of a tower you can build before it falls and crumbles. To play the the game of Jenga is to know that the tower is going to fall. If you don't want it to fall, don't play the game. (laughs) Drew and I were once neighbors many, many years ago with some students who attend a Baptist institution down the road on Lexington. And 
we would have conversations with them and occasionally, I don't know if you know, but I'm a female minister. And <laughs> so occasionally issues like women in ministry or God's view on sexuality or things like that would come up. Um, as we would talk, and we would sort of try to hear one another, but um, sometimes they would say, you just have to know that if I were to really change my mind about that or read scripture differently, it would be like taking a, a block out of a Jenga game that the whole tower could crumble if I removed too many of those blocks. That my whole understanding of faith and the Gospels would just disintegrate. It's better for the tower to stand than to remove the blocks and risk everything falling apart. Now, before you pat yourself on the back that you're so much better than that, that we don't do that, don't let yourself off the hook so easily. Don't waste the sermon on thinking about how self-righteous you are. Southern Baptists are not the only ones who do this. We all do this. We are human. We like certainty, clarity. We foolishly think that the more control we have over something, the more stable and secure we all are. Once we have established a theological tower, a cognitive map of our understanding, a biblical lens, we can come become pretty attached to that theological tower, and the tower itself becomes the God that we worship if we're not careful. Now, what precedes Nicodemus's visit to Jesus at night is that Jesus has just disrupted the temple, has overturned the tables and thrown out the money changers and all of that, which is curious if you're paying attention because in all the other gospels, that happens at the end of the gospel, but actually in John, for some reason, it happens at the beginning because John is always doing what John is going to do. John likes to be different. And John clearly wants to make this connection that Jesus comes and disrupts the temple, and the next night, Nicodemus shows up at Jesus' doorstep. When you have built a life as one who articulates the mystery of God like Nicodemus has, Jesus is such a disruptor. Perhaps that's why we find Nicodemus visiting Jesus at night. Many people, even maybe you in Bible study, talked about this, if you talked about this scripture, and talked about how maybe Nicodemus was trying to do this in secret so that the crowds didn't see him or the Pharisees didn't see him. Some commentaries suggested that Nicodemus comes at night so that he can have uninterrupted time with Jesus. Because during the day, people are always interrupting Jesus, and he could come at night so that they could really talk and figure things out. We don't know why Nicodemus comes, but the Gospel of John will tell us that Jesus knew exactly why Nicodemus was there. Because throughout John's account of Jesus we see that Jesus seems to know people better than they know themselves. And therefore, Jesus responds to people in the book of John different all the time. It depends on the person. Even next week, how Jesus responds to the woman at the well, as Lauren will preach off of, it's different than how Jesus responds to Nicodemus in this passage. So Nicodemus, what are you doing here in the darkness of night? 
Are you trying to reason with Jesus? Trying to just convince him to settle down a little bit, all right? Or maybe to prove he is right, Nicodemus, and, and, and Jesus is wrong. The dialogue, when you're reading it, sort of reminds me of at the end of the day when you've lived a long day and you start replaying everything that happened during the day, all the conversations you had, the argument or a conflict or whatever, and you start playing that like a loop in your head. So Jesus just gets on the thought train with Nicodemus and goes. Birth of flesh or water and spirit ascending, descending, back in the mother's womb? They go round and round until we're all a bit dizzy. Nicodemus, what are you doing here in the darkness of night? Or better yet, Jesus, what do you know about why Nicodemus is here? Jesus seems to be actively, intentionally confusing Nicodemus, frustrating his mind, disrupting his theological tower. It's as if Jesus knows that underneath it all, Nicodemus is not here at night for intellectual sparring about abstract concepts, even though that's what it seems. Jesus knows what Nicodemus cannot know, which is that no one can think their way to God. We cannot think our way to God. What works for Nicodemus by day and works for many of us An active mind, articulated doctrine, clear religious understanding, it doesn't satisfy at nightfall. Our attempt to think our way to God always leads us into dangerous territory. We domesticate this mystery of God. We tame the divine. We control who God is, how God is, and why God is. Nicodemus, what are you doing here in the middle of the night? I wrestled with all of these things, feeling personally confronted by most of it. So last Friday, I carved out an hour at a place in town, one of my favorite places that sort of unlocks things I didn't even know were caged, and that is the Speed Art Museum. I think it's because I use so many words in my job that going and looking at art just helps me in some way. I had had lunch there and poured over these commentaries about what it all means, and I wandered into the Speed Sculpture Court, which is just right there in the beginning, And I stumble upon this seven-foot marble sculpture that I know I have seen before because it is huge and it's right there in the middle. But when I saw it with all these things going on in my head, I saw it like I had never seen it before. A human figure bent at the waist, hovering over another human figure at his feet, embracing him. It's a depiction of the prodigal son. Being embraced by his father, a replica of George Gray Bernard's 1909 creation. And as I've been thinking about concepts, and then I look here at this sculpture where I see the father's face is nestled in his son's neck, and his arms hold him tight but tender, and the father's fingers interlace even within the son's flowing 
hair and his eyes are closed and his nose breathing in the smell of this one he thought lost. When you get lost in the concept of God, the flesh of God is startling and shocking and astonishing. As the whole Jenga structure falls before Nicodemus, his theological tower completely crumbling, Jesus speaks these words which do stick out out of all of that. For God so loved the world. Jesus doesn't come out and hug Nicodemus as a father hugs the son, but Jesus' words surely embrace Nicodemus and us all the same. Jesus is calling us each into this truth that is difficult. Faith is not a Jenga game. Faith is not an intellectual hobby or pursuit. Faith is not about creating your theological tower or dismantling anyone else's. Faith is a relationship. And Brene Brown has written a million books that will tell you it is much easier to build and defend theological towers than to live in authentic relationship with others. Because relationships require vulnerability and courage and a sense of entering into the unknown which you cannot control. We in this church are not just offering you building blocks for your faith. We are seeking to live in relationship with God who is creator of the heavens and earth, with Jesus who is redeemer and friend, with Holy Spirit who is disruptor and comforter. We're not selling a product, and we're not just maintaining an institution. We are people in relationship with God, a God whom I cannot control but a God whom I do believe loves this world deeply. The question for Nicodemus and us all, are we here to be proven right, or are we here to be loved by God? As mentioned, we celebrated the life of Frank Tupper on Friday, and I couldn't help but think of him as I was thinking of all these things. When Betty Tupper died in 1983 from a terrible battle with cancer, we have to know that Frank's theological towers surely crumbled, even though he probably was not one for theological towers and easy answers anyway. And in the dust and debris of his grief, Tupper managed not to rebuild a strict theology that would protect him from pain or explain it away. He leaned into relationship with Jesus and sustained his soul with Jesus' love, not relying on his own understanding. He somehow found a way to live theologically free without taming or domesticating the tragedy that he endured nor the gospel he loved. And on the days he had no faith, Frank trusted that in his relationship with Jesus, that Jesus would hold the faith for him. That freedom and vulnerability surely terrified everyone around him. His students, whose faith in a theological tower was more sure than their relationship with God. 
Now, what's curious, even though this is scripture that so many people love, we don't know how Nicodemus reacts when we read the Gospel of John. We don't know how he reacts in that moment or how he experiences the rest of Jesus' ministry. But we do know this. Near the end of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus shows back up. He brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds, and joins Joseph of Arimathea in preparing Jesus' body for burial. While we see him here swimming in word and doctrine, by the end, he only comes to touch and tend the body of Jesus. He doesn't speak a word. This Lent, whenever your theological tower starts to teeter and fall, crumble and dissolve, I invite you to pause before you start instinctively grabbing a bunch of bricks around you to build a new tower that will keep you safe. Pause and look up in faith so that you might see our God embracing you. This God who so loves our world that Jesus will go this Lent where we cannot and Jesus will endure what we could not and he will be the one who speaks words of peace over us Easter morning. The word, not silence, was made flesh, not concept. And grace, not merit, ministered to faith, not knowledge, in such a way that we may act as though we were an incarnation too. We cannot understand all of these things, but this is the best news we've got. Amen.